verses 20 to 26. And what we find there is John carried along by the Holy Spirit. He writes this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew, and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, we just pray in total dependence on you and your spirit. The the same spirit that inspired John to write these words, the same spirit that enabled us to cry out, Jesus is Lord, is the same spirit we so desperately need this morning, teaching us, guiding us, changing us, giving more love for Christ an hour from now than we have right now. The same Spirit that we need so desperately to conform us more to the image of Christ an hour from now than we have right now. We want to look more like Jesus. We want to know more of Jesus. So God, we just ask you to do supernatural things in this room, even right now, for your name's sake here, and for your name's sake among the nations. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a, there's a saying, perception is reality. And behind that is this idea that what people perceive to be true, whether or not it is actually true, is what they'll more or less believe to be true. So, for instance, I have some slides. This is what most people in America, this is how most people in America think that we live over there in Africa. Now, what's interesting is most people in Africa, this next slide is what they think, how they think we live. Now, the, the following slide is what most people in America think I do on a daily basis, that every day I'm just kind of like Billy Graham out there with thousands and thousands of people. What, again, what's interesting, most people in Niger, the country I live, this is what they think I do all day long, every single day. And on and on it goes. Now, none of these misperceptions are reality, but they can lead to some pretty dangerous false assumptions that will just kind of naturally flow out of them. So in our text this morning, Jesus is going out of his way to explain to his disciples and any would-be disciples the way that God works. Because he understands if we miss this, if we misunderstand this, we're going to be in danger of missing out what God has not only called us, but invited us into. So, So first, if you're taking notes there, Jesus wants to make sure we don't miss some things. First of all, we don't want to misunderstand the mission of God. In the context that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, he's ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. All the while, throngs of Jewish crowds with their palm branches cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then John tells us something interesting that we might miss the significance of. He says, there were some Greeks in town and they wanted to see Jesus. And it's that little side note about these Greeks that that stirs Jesus greatly and, and launches him into this brief sermon on mission. So the question is, what would it be? What is it about some Greeks showing up seeking Jesus that would stir him so deeply, stir him so much more than even throngs of of Jews waving their palm branches? Well, I think Jesus recognizes there is something significant happening here, that that these Greeks are only the beginning. They are the first fruits of an ancient promise. Jesus understands that this crowd of Jews with their palm branches, in large part, they, they misunderstood the mission of God. That they were looking for a political messiah who would come and kick the Romans out of town. They were thinking in ethnocentric terms. 
they falsely assumed the mission of God was, was only for Jews. You and I too, we can misunderstand the mission of God, but for us when we do that, what we begin to falsely assume is that the mission of God or, or missions is for missionaries. It's what missionaries do. The, the missions is what the church just sort of contracts out to its missionaries or maybe its short-term volunteer teams. And this is where a helpful distinction comes in between the word missionary and missions. I love your church name. I'm very passionate about that. Missionary... We've got a definition for you. It's simply someone who, as their vocation, as their life work, crosses a culture with the gospel to teach people what Jesus has taught them. That's what a missionary is. Now, it's clear not all of us are caught into that type of vocation, which is why we have to have this second term, missions. Missions, on the other hand, is simply God's global plan of bringing himself glory. And he's chosen to do that through the salvation of of the nations. And that, friends, that's something all of us are called to. That every one of us in this room is called to be engaged in the mission of God. It's the will of God for your life. So you can no more say, you know, I'm not really interested in missions any more than you can say, you know, I'm not really interested in, in holiness. No, you're interested in missions because God is. Every Christian under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is interested in missions. Not everyone's a missionary. But everyone is called to mission. So you might not move your family to Indonesia. You might not even get on a plane and come to a place like Niger for a week. But don't think for a second that somehow that means you have not been called to and invited into what God is doing among the nations. This crowd in Jerusalem, they, they thought the mission of God was about a military triumph. We think it's about mission trips. Both of us are misunderstanding the mission of God. We, we're thinking too small, too nearsighted. And instead, God, from the beginning of time, has had this global plan. These Greek guys showing up, they're simply a reminder that everything is going according to plan. They're part of something that began in Genesis 12. You remember what happened there? God calls Abram. And he says this, I'm going to create for me, from you, a covenant community. And from that covenant community, I'm going to bring salvation to the world, to the nations. And over and over and over again, this is the story of the Old Testament. It's not about Israel, is it? It's about Israel being a light for, a blessing to the conduit through which God is going to save the nations. It's just this constant drum in the Old Testament. Then you have 400 years of silence. John the Baptist breaks that silence by saying what? It's Tom, right? He's here. Jesus comes on the scene and begins to teach things like, I've got sheep that are not of this flock, not all of Israel or Abraham's children. You've got Matthew 28. Go into where? If you don't know this, we've got to back up. All the nations, right? You, you wait for the Holy Spirit and go into the nations. So they go back. The Holy Spirit falls in tongues of fire. Peter stands up and preaches the most non-seeker-sensitive sermon. And what happens? 3,000 Jews believe. Acts 5, Luke tells us 5,000 Jews have believed. What, what happened? I thought this was about the nation. So far, we're still extremely Jewish. There's this great story that happens in Acts 10 and 11 where uh, Peter has a vision on the rooftop. At the same time, an angel appears to Cornelius and says, go get Peter, bring him to preach to you. So he does. Peter preaches to Cornelius and Cornelius of the Italian cohort, this Gentile and his whole family gets saved. Peter goes back to report to the church, and in true church fashion, what do they do? They form a committee, and they take a vote on whether or not God can save the Gentiles. That's why we think the first churches were Southern Baptists. <laughs> Peter goes back, he reports, they take a vote, they say, hey, God just saved a Gentile. Are we okay with that? 
Are we going to let him do that? So they take a vote. Yes, 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 you're in, you're in. Great. We're going to let God save the Gentiles. But from this moment, the gospel just gets unleashed on the world like never before. I just want to give you a taste this morning of what that looked like as this ancient promise began to unfold. 42 AD, Mark goes to Egypt. 49, Paul to Turkey. 51, Paul to Greece. 52, Thomas to India. By 180, there are Christians in Algeria and Sri Lanka. 174, Christians now in Austria. 432, Patrick goes to Ireland. We celebrate this each year by getting drunk and pinching each other. 580, Christians in North Yemen. 635, missionaries in China. 740, Irish monks to Iceland. By 900, there are missionaries in Norway. 1015, Russia is engaged for the first time with the gospel. 1200, the Bible is now available in 22 different languages. 1489, the Wolof king of Senegal converts to Christianity. 1494, missionaries arrive in the Dominican Republic. 1498, Christians in Kenya. 1501, gospel to South America. 1520, missionaries to Mexico, Florida, California. 1794, missionaries to Alaska. 1827, gospel to Australia. 1876, missionaries arrive in what was called white man's grave. Today we call it Nigeria. 1988, the New Testament is now available in 300 languages. 2009, the first indigenous Songhai church is planted in northwestern Niger. 2013, this church sends out its first missionaries to Al-Qaeda-occupied land. 2014, that church plants its first daughter church. And on and on and on this thing goes, God accomplishing exactly what he said he would in Genesis 12. And this is what you're caught up in. This is, this is what I'm caught up in. God has invited us into this thing. And he's going to do exactly what he said he would do. And we're just trying to figure out, how do I align my life with that? How do I align my life, my resources with that? So that I might not be tempted to think in such small, short-sighted, temporary things. To, to waste my life on things. Listen, maybe good things. Maybe even godly things. Lots of religious activity, lots of religious busyness, but things that do not lead us one step closer to the nations. Instead of that, though, to align my life with this mission of God. This is what my family has attached our lives to among the Songhai people in Niger these past eight years. And it's been unbelievable what we've been able to witness. We've just seen an explosion of the worship of Jesus rising up out of this people who for centuries didn't even know his name. This is the picture in 2010 with believers in about six villages. This is after about 11 years of, of work among the Songhai. I know you look at that and you think that looks pretty insignificant, but in an Islamic country, this is a harvest. Things like that just don't happen. But, but watch what God's done these past four years. So that today, 36 villages in Niger have had their history altered for eternity. God has, has poured out His Spirit. And what has happened is, Songha men and Songha women, they've begun to align their lives with the mission of God. These illiterate sustenance farmers, brand new to their faith, kicked out of their families and their communities, they believe something that you and I struggle to believe. And that is simply this, that making disciples, leading people to Christ, showing them what it means to follow Christ, that's not something missionaries do. That's something followers of Jesus do. This fickle crowd waving their palm branches, all excited about Jesus coming into town. John tells us in a few short days, these are going to be the same ones who are shouting what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And we say, how foolish, right? How, how double-minded of them. And yet you and I too, if we're not careful, 
we'll be guilty of that exact same sort of doublespeak. And that leads to the second false assumption we make. When we misunderstand the mission of God, the second false assumption we make is that we begin to think missions is what happens over there. Places like Niger, places like Haiti. That's where missions happens, and we miss what God has invited us into right here. See, I worry sometimes. I worry that some of you in here might get really excited about the nations so long as they remain over there. I'm afraid that some of you would actually get on a plane, fly 6,000 miles to share Christ with Muslims, but you get your feathers all ruffled up when a mosque goes up in Bowling Green. That's the exact same sort of doublespeak and missing the point that these palm branch waving Jews fell into. They were all about the mission of God so long as they got to define it. But see, we don't get to put parameters or conditions on the mission of God. The mission of God is not an over there thing. It's a right here thing. It's an everywhere thing. We're called to be making disciples with the nations in view, wherever we find ourselves. But what a unique opportunity you have here in America that that God in his sovereignty and his grace, he's bringing the nations to you. They're here. People are here from, from countries, from nations where they would never have a chance to hear the gospel, never have the chance to meet a Christian. They're here. And if that bothers you, if that freaks you out a little bit, if you see the nations pouring into America as a threat, and as people who are taking over your country, friends, you need to repent. God, help us that we wouldn't love America more than we love the gospel. Don't go across the ocean if you won't go across the street. Don't miss what God has invited you into right here, right now, aligning your life with this mission of God. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, that's, that's the mission. That's the mission, right? Glory. And, and no one has a real problem with that. In fact, I can imagine the Jews kind of high-fiving one another and saying, that, that's what we're talking about. Pick the Romans out of town. Give us this Messiah King. We want some of this glory. But we have to keep reading, don't we? Jesus is about to knock the wind right out of them. Maybe out of us, too. Yes, Jesus is going to be glorified. But how? How is he going to be glorified? And that leads us to our second misunderstanding, and that is that we'll misunderstand so often the method of God. See, Jesus tells us something that far too many of us don't really believe. And that is simply this, that the method God uses to accomplish his mission is through suffering and through death. The Son of Man is going to be glorified, but he's not going to be glorified through a coup d'etat. He's going to be glorified through a cross. That is not what the crowd wanted to hear. That's not the kind of kingdom they're trying to usher in with their palm branches. They want the glory without the cross. They want the fruit without all the dead grain. They didn't realize, though, this was, this was the plan. This was the mission of God, how it was going to unfold. The crowds didn't like the message of a suffering Christ. Now, those of us on this side of the cross... That doesn't bother us too much. We understand that. But what we don't like is the message of a suffering Christian. Right? That's what we don't want to hear. That that what you and I struggle to understand is that this method of God, it isn't simply descriptive of what Christ did, but it is prescriptive of what God is calling us to do with our lives. There are false assumptions. You miss this. There are all kinds of false assumptions you'll make. The first is this, that you will think suffering is not God's plan for my life. See, again, I think we'll agree God's method for his mission was through the suffering and death of Christ. We sing songs about it. We we wear crosses on our necks. We we get that. But what we have got to see and believe is that his continued strategy in the world today, his method for accomplishing his mission today is through the suffering and death of his followers. 
John Piper says it like this. His dying for our salvation is his design for our imitation. Joseph Son writes it like this. Whereas Christ's death was for propitiation, ours is for propagation. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in Colossians 1.24. And he talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That verse used to bother me so much. I'm like, what is Paul talking about? Is he deceived into thinking that Jesus' atoning work was somehow lacking in effectiveness? No, not at all. Paul understands what Jesus is talking about here. Paul understands this method of God. That what is lacking is that Christ's afflictions are not known. They're not seen. They're not loved by the nations. So God's strategy, his method of making known these afflictions of Christ is the personal presentation of those afflictions through the suffering and through the death of folks like you and folks like me and folks like your kids and folks like my kids. You and I are called not only to suffer, but to suffer very publicly while the nations watch. That sounds so foreign to us, doesn't it? That seems so hard to believe that, that my suffering somehow could be God's very plan to grow His church and display His glory among the nations. See, you miss that. You misunderstand that. You will not join Him in what He is calling you to do. And the consequences for the nations, they'll be huge. Jesus has invited us into this thing to hate our lives, to, to fall into the ground like a seed and to die so that others might live. This is God's plan for your life. That won't sell any books, but it will build His church. It will pronounce His kingdom. There's another false assumption that we'll make, and that is that we will begin to assume suffering is not normal. It's just not normal. I'd always assumed growing up in Franklin, the street away from Eric, that suffering was abnormal. It was the exception, not the rule. It was something to be avoided. It was a problem, a setback, a barrier to overcome. But what if suffering, and in particular persecution, what if that was the normal, expected situation for a believer? What if persecution, in fact, was the very best soil in which faith, and more importantly, the church might grow? So we've got to understand what persecution is. Persecution is what happens when you have a government or maybe an ideology or possibly a family that reacts negatively to the individual Christian when they come to Christ. I think most of us get that. But for us here in America, at least not yet, we don't have governments like that. We don't have ideologies like that. Most of us don't have families like that. So we just assume then persecution is not really normal for someone like me. It's more for someone in Somalia or possibly China. But see, we have to understand the purpose of persecution. Nick Ripkin in his book, The Insanity of God, he writes, The purpose of persecution is not to inflict pain or really even fear, but rather to silence witness. That ultimately, persecutors seek to deny others access to Jesus. This is why they do what they do. Governments are going to do this through imprisonment. Ideologies want to do this through beheadings. Families want to do this through shaming. These are all just manifestations of the enemy lashing out at witnesses, trying to silence the gospel because Satan takes the Bible seriously, folks. I think he believes, maybe even more than us, that faith actually comes by hearing. So he wants to shut you up at the lowest common denominator. I want to look at some interesting graphics with you. This first is the 1040 window. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's just this area of the world that is the most lost. This is where the majority of people who can honestly say, I've never met a Christian, I've never heard the name of Jesus, this is where they live predominantly. 
These are the toughest places to follow Jesus, that where coming to faith in Christ often means being pushed out of family, pushed out of community, possibly being jailed, possibly being beaten, possibly being killed. This is where we would say the majority of overt persecution in the world today is taking place. This is where a lot of people think Satan maybe is most at work, maybe even winning. As we see 21 dear brothers lose their life on those shores, we think maybe Satan's actually winning. As we see overt persecution as governments and ideologies and families lash out at witnesses. Look at this next slide. These are the 40 countries where Christianity is growing the fastest. I think you can tell about 75% of those countries are right there inside that window. Now look at this next one with me. These are the 40 countries where Christianity is declining the fastest. And I think you can tell 100% of those are outside of that window. What in the world do we do with that? That in places where over-persecution is the strongest, the gospel is exploding with growth, but in the areas that are the most safe, the most free to share Christ boldly and openly. These are the places where Christianity is shrinking back, where it's declining the fastest. See, we have to remember, though, the purpose of persecution. You remember? It's the silence witness. So the worst form of persecution is not beheading someone. It's not torturing someone. It is denying someone access to Jesus. So so what does that say to 12,000 Southern Baptist churches, my denomination, 12,000 churches last year did not baptize one person. Well, what does that say to churches that are full of folks in them, Sunday after Sunday, have been in Christ, had the Spirit of God living in them 5, 10, 15 years, have done every Beth Moore Bible study, downloaded every David Platt sermon, and yet have never led a single person to Christ outside their family. We are all very much involved in persecution. The only question is, which side are you on? Which side are you on? Because our silence, I want you to get this this morning. Look at this graphic. Our silence is more effective at silencing witness than a jihadist blade. Our silence is more effective than a Chinese prison camp. Those of us who number ourselves among the followers of Jesus but do not witness for him are unwilling to suffer for him, who love and cling to our lives, you are on the wrong side. You are aiding and abetting Satan's ultimate goal of denying others access to Jesus. Nick Ripkin says, our silence makes us accomplices. I just find it terrifying to think that nominal Christianity in Bowling Green, Kentucky, it is accomplishing what Boko Haram and ISIS only dreamed they could. Folks, we need to repent. Like, like right now, we need to fall on our faces and confess that for far too long we have loved our lives, we have valued safety and security so much more than we do the gospel. We need to repent of our silence, to our refusal to suffer for and to witness to the name of Jesus. I think we need to repent for the way we pray. You see, if, if the primary cause of overt persecution in the world today is people coming to Jesus, think about the implications of that. For those of us who, who value safety, value security so much, who, who think suffering is never God's plan, suffering is never normal, well, it kind of messes with us, right, when we see our brothers 
paying such a high cost to follow Jesus. It really bothers us. So what a lot of us will do is we'll pray for an end to that. We will pray for persecution to end in the world. But, but think about that for a second. The only way God can actually answer that prayer would be for people to stop coming to faith in Christ. If people stop coming to faith in Jesus, persecution would end immediately. It's the only way to totally eradicate persecution. And it's happening. I mean, look at, look at the graphic that in places where overt persecution has ceased, the spread of the gospel has also ceased. Friends, our comfort, our safety, our security, they've come at a terrible cost to the gospel. You know, the, the world values safety and security, and we, we understand that. But what's so alarming to me, coming into this context after being gone for eight years, what's so alarming is how that thought has penetrated and infiltrated the church. You know, a month ago, radical Islamists, they, they burned to the ground about 80% of the church buildings in the country where we live, there in Niger, while we were here. And I can't tell you how many people, how many friends, how many family members, Christians, came up to me, Facebooked me, emailed me, and said something along the lines of, man, I bet you're glad you were here when all that was going down. What, what do I say to them? What do I tell them? The, the truth? No. No, I wasn't glad I was here. I was weeping on the floor of my bedroom because I wasn't there. I'd give anything I have, everything I have right now to, to go there and be with them. The call of Christ is costly, friends. We've got to understand that. We've got to understand the method God has called us into. Because if we don't, if you don't, you'll make this final and possibly most tragic misunderstanding. And that is this, you will misunderstand the reward. And the false assumption here is that obedience makes my life better now. Jesus says what? He says, you hate your life. You serve me. Follow me. And get this. You will be with me. You'll be where I am. And beyond that, you will be honored by the Father. You, who are an object of His wrath, you were dead in your sins, had a heart of stone. You're going to be honored by God. I mean, the fact that we don't just stop right now and celebrate that proves we either don't understand it or we don't believe it. Listen, it's not going to be easier now. It's not going to be better now, but it's going to be so worth it. I think the real key to understanding a mob of people who could one day cry Hosanna and the next day cry crucify him is, is verse 18. If you look at verse 18, John tells us something interesting there. He says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. That is, they had heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. I think John's cluing us in that this crowd, they were never about the mission of God. They weren't there to usher in Christ to his kingdom. They weren't there to lay down their lives in obedience. They were there to see another trick. They were there to be entertained, to be amused, to be amazed. And the second that Jesus didn't deliver, deliver, they would be out. They would turn on him. And we follow Jesus much the same way, don't we? That that we've bought into this lie that that following Christ is somehow going to make my life easier, make my life more comfortable, more blessed, not a Matthew 5 beatitude sort of blessed. That, That we'll wave our palm branches so long as Jesus does exactly what I want him to do. And the the second that he doesn't deliver, we will turn on him and we'll be out that door. And somehow we've convinced ourselves that Jesus should make my life better now. Better jobs, better health, better bank accounts, better boats, better vacations. We've mastered loving our lives. We have 
books, whole sections of books in our bookstores dedicated to teaching us how to cling to our lives, how to get the most out of our lives. Now, we've, we've sought security and comfort for so long we've begun to think there are rights. I know, I know you're big on rights here in America. You, you're told you have all sorts of them that you deserve. Friends, you've been misled. You have been lied to your entire life. You and I have but one right, one thing that we deserve. That is an eternity apart from our holy creator God that is willful rebels, as objects of his righteous wrath. We deserve a real and eternal place called hell. That's what we deserve. That's what we receive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, that's the reward worth throwing your life away for. That's the honor worth hating your life for. We've settled for too little. We've settled for things that rust and decay. That you and I, we would really live like we believe that following Jesus is better. It's better than all the pleasures, all the possessions, all the pursuits of this world put together. Do, do you really believe that? Do you really believe it's better for someone to know Christ and be killed because of it than to spend a long and healthy life without Christ and then die to a Christless eternity? That's not a hypothetical question for me anymore. I have to come to grips that daily I am causing, calling people into something that will increase suffering in their lives, maybe even cost them their lives. Our, our first discipleship lesson with new believers is this is about to get really hard. Is the reward of Christ going to be worth it? Is the reward of God really worth it? Do you really believe that? Will you really believe that? When, when God calls your son or your daughter, or your grandson, or your granddaughter to the nations. So I have no doubt, I have no doubt in my mind that God wants to raise folks up from Mission Church, Bowling Green, Kentucky, to go to the nations. And I am so fearful that, that one of the biggest stumbling blocks, one of the biggest obstacles to them getting to the nations will be people sitting in this room right now. Maybe people like my parents who were passionate about the Great Commission until it got a little too personal. And when your daughter, when your grandson comes to you and says, hey, I think God is calling me to Yemen, I'm so afraid there might actually be people in here this morning who will plead with them not to go, who will say to them things like, why would you want to throw away your life like that? Don't go to Yemen. We need you right here. We want you to get married right here. We want to have Sunday dinners together. We want to visit at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. I want to bounce my grandkids up and down on my knees. Don't go to Yemen. If that's you, if you say that to them, then in that moment, what you'll be communicating to them is that I drug you to a building Sunday after Sunday to listen to a message that I don't really believe. We gotta understand, y'all. We have to see that, that yes, there is a time to sit down with our family and to feast and to enjoy one another. That time's not Thanksgiving. That time is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Go to Yemen. Go to Somalia. Be ridiculed. Be tortured. Be imprisoned. Be killed. And do so with the gospel on your lips. The gospel I really believe. The gospel I taught you to believe. 
And I will meet you again among the throngs of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. As together we celebrate that we gave our lives that the Lamb of God might receive the reward of his suffering. That is the salvation of the nations. Do not let this church become a landing strip when God has called you to be a launch pad. Might you be a church committed to his mission, his method, his reward. Jesus is calling you to to throw away your life. Count your life as nothing. It doesn't have anything to do with where you live. It has everything to do with obedience to Jesus. If that makes you nervous, like what Eric said about giving God a, a blank check, if that makes you nervous to think about throwing your life away like that for the gospel, you see, you don't need to be nervous about that. What should scare you? What should you should be afraid of is putting conditions and limits on what you're willing to do in obedience to Christ because that's the scary place to live in. He is he's calling you to teach your children, your grandchildren, what it means to align your life with the mission of God that you would not stand in their way, that you would not model for them what clinging to life looked like, but rather you would send them out You would send them out knowing there are no guarantees they'll come back. Knowing there are no guarantees they'll be home at Christmas. Knowing some will be hated. Some will be tortured. Some will be killed. But you do it with joy because you really believe what Moses believed. And that is that the reproach of Christ was greater than all the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking to the reward. Attaching your life to this mission is costly. But it's so worth it. And and 13 trillion years from now, it's still going to be worth it. Did you really believe that? And some of you don't believe it because you've never believed it. And I pray this morning that the gospel, this good news about what God has done to make a way for sinners to be in right relationship with Him, I pray this morning the gospel might find your soul ripe. I invite you to, to call out to him, to, to cry out to him, have mercy on me, a sinner. But maybe for most of us in here, I just wonder if you've grown content. You've been satisfied too easily. Content to just sort of coast that you, you've played this game long enough to know how to fool everyone. But the reality is you do not pray and you do not live like you really believe this anymore. Your life is is not marked by radical obedience, but rather by nominal complacency. I find it so fascinating in Scripture that those who seem to know God best are also the most discontent, the ones who who can't seem to get enough. That Paul, who arguably knew Christ better than anyone in history, what does he write? Oh, that I might know Christ. There's this longing, this yearning, this insatiable thirst and desire for more. Have you become content? I pray you too this morning that that the gospel might find your soul ripe. Will you say to him this morning, for me to live is Christ. Everything, Christ. My job, Christ. My family, Christ. My retirement plans, Christ. Everything, Christ. Can you say that? to him this morning. I pray that you will. Let's let's pray. Father, we oh God, we need to repent. Lord, just be ruthless with us in revealing selfish ambitions, lack of willingness to die. God, show us. Show us where we still love sin more than we love Jesus. Just be ruthless with us, Lord. Remove scales from eyes. Remove hardness from hearts that we might once again see the preciousness, the infinite value Jesus.
God, would you do that here even now for your name's sake, for your name's sake among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.